Good morning. Welcome to Resurrection Church. How's everyone doing? Great. Well, it's September. What does that mean? Pumpkin spice. Pumpkin spice. That's right. That's right. Can we put the uh, the other lights on as well? Uh, there we go. Pumpkin spice. Yes. Um, it's probably my favorite times of year because we're starting to get to the tail end. Hopefully, start cooling off by October of uh, of the hot weather. Am I loud? I sound loud. I feel loud. Yes, in a good way, but but I don't want to be too loud. All right, welcome to Resurrection Church. If you have your Bibles, open up to Hebrews chapter six. Hebrews chapter six. And we are in a very significant passage that uh, when somebody says, oh, you're going to teach Hebrews? What about Hebrews 6? (laughs) It's like one of the most difficult passages in all of Scripture. But we're up for the challenge, right? Hebrews 6, remember, Hebrews is a sermon, a letter written to a congregation, mostly of Jewish believers, people who come from the Jewish background, we believe they have come to Christ and they have uh, endured great suffering, uh, but they're thinking perhaps of other other options. Um, the writer, of course, knows these people. He even says at the end, he sends greetings. Uh, he has some, obviously, knowledge of who they are. And he appeals to them to follow Christ, to not give up on Jesus. You know, the temptation is always to give up. And sometimes, you know, when life happens, you know, things that are difficult, uh, when you get your sight off the Lord Jesus, then it's, um, you know, the walk of faith is not easy. We're, we're being pulled in all kinds of directions constantly, you know. And, amen. We're, we're being challenged. Faith isn't just what you know intellectually. It's, it's part of your whole life. It's like, and so you're, there's always that challenge. And so uh, in Hebrews, uh, he has been arguing for them to go on to maturity, to, to press on to maturity. Um, he says, look at verse, uh, uh, verse 1, Therefore, leaving the elementary teachings about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again the foundation uh, of repentance from dead works and a faith toward God, of teaching about washing and laying on of hands, and of the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do, this referring to pressing on to maturity, we will do if God permits. He's going to come back to that idea in chapter 6, verse 12. Look there real fast. I'm just giving you a little bit of parameters before we dive in. So that, verse 12, you may not become dull, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. He says, Don't, I want you to press on to maturity. Now the question, of course, is, is everyone going to press on to maturity? And he takes a side note in verse 4 and says, there are going to be some, and this is where we're going to get to, that aren't able to press on maturity. And we'll see why that is. Okay, Verses 4 through 6 are the teaching. Verse 7 8 is the explanation of the teaching. Uh, and the question, of course, we're going to ask is, who, are, who is he describing? Who are these people? So let me read, and we're going to do some Bible study. We're going to look at a lot of verses. And my hope, of course, his, his intention with these verses we're going to read is in one sense to sort of get their attention. <laughs> he's going to shoot across the bow, you know, and just get their attention. But he's going to say, but this is not the case for you guys. But I'm going to just let you know, this is a possibility, and we'll see what that means, okay? Um, so he gives a warning. In fact, in Hebrews, there's several warning passages. Chapter 6, 4 through 6 is one of them. But there's four, other, four, four or five total ones. Chapter 2, there's one. Chapter 3 and 4. Chapter 5 through 6. Chapter 9, chapter 10. There's various warning passages. And with each one... He gives an illustration of Old Testament case either explicitly or implicitly. And here he gives an implicit warning uh, through the, of the Old Testament. 
And so they all go together, and the idea is, is to press on to maturity, to stay with the Lord, and not give up. Okay, so for, for, let me just read this, verse 4. For in the case of those who have been once enlightened, and having tasted the heavenly gift, and having become partakers of the Holy Spirit, and having, having tasted the good word of God, and the powers of the age to come, and having fallen away... It is impossible to renew them to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. So he's giving the warning here. Then in verse 7 and 8, he's going to give an illustration or an explanation for, which is an explanatory term, for ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation Useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is unfit and close to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Then he says in verse 9, But we are convinced about you, beloved, of things that are better, things that belong to salvation, though we are speaking in this way. In this section from verse 4 and 6, he's speaking about those. Okay? In verse 9, he goes back to you. Okay, So he's going to speak of somebody where this happens or has happened. And we're going to try to understand, who are these people? That's really the first question. Like, who are they? What, what, what has really happened to these particular people he's talking about? Who are they? And that's the biggest question. Okay, are these people who are saved and they lost their salvation? Are these people who who never were saved, are these people, I mean, there's, there's all kinds, are these people who are saved, but they're losing their reward? That's, those are all, those are three of like five explanations of this text. We'll get to our conclusion as we go through, because my, I'm a stickler for using the context of the book first. Remember, he is speaking to a church that is very well versed in the Old Testament. How do we know that? Because so far, the first five chapters, He's used a lot of Old Testament, and he will continue. He speaks of worship of angels. He speaks of, um, of Jesus being better than Moses, of Jesus better, being better than Joshua, of Jesus having a better priesthood through Aaron, than Melchizedek. Those are all Old Testament stuff. We don't know if these people who are listening even had access to Paul's letters. They may have, they may not have, but his examples, he's appealing to Old Testament, primarily the translation which is called the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. He, he quotes, they know their Old Testament. So my goal here is to keep within how he's doing this. His conclusions may agree with other parts of what Paul writes and other writers. They may, may agree with those things, but we're not going to jump right there. We're going to say, well, what is he, how would they understand? That's just very key. Even with Bible, with Bible interpretations, it's key for saying, what is he doing here and why? His goal here is to not make them afraid, but his goal is to say, hey, um, there's the edge that's a possibility. Now, I don't think you're near the edge, but I'm just letting you know that's a possibility. But you're not, I don't think you're near the edge. So he's trying to let them know that the possibilities, okay? So, <clears throat> okay. What do I think he's doing here? I'm not going to tell you, okay? <laughs> We're going to get to that conclusion together. I could tell you, but I would have to kill you. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. He, has, he is encouraging to spiritual maturity. He is confronting them. I want you to mature. There are some who may be in danger of, of not even able to mature in the Lord. That's what he's talking about here. But I have confidence that you are able to mature. Verse 4. We're going to go through this carefully, okay? Verse 4, four which is an explanatory term. It's, uh, he's going to explain why some won't be able to press on to maturity. We'll see. Uh, namely, those who I think aren't saved to begin with. But we'll see if the text supports that idea for there are those who will never be able to press on maturity they'll even despite outward appearances for in case of those who have 
once been enlightened. The word once, some want to say that's once for all. It's the word hapax, H-A-P-A-X. It means once. Now, some dictionaries say it's once forever, but that's not true. It means at one time. For example, if you go to Hebrews 9, Hebrews 9, just over to your right, in verse 7, it speaks to the high priest who, uh, well, look here, verse, nine, uh, verse 7, uh, but into the second, Hebrews 9, 7, into the second, only the high priest, speaking when the high priest enters the Holy of Holies, he enters once a year, not once forever in a lifetime. It's once a year. At one time in that year, one time, that's the Day of Atonement, he enters. That's the word that's used here. It means, going back to Hebrews 6, it means at some time, at some time, they have been enlightened. If Paul, Paul, I say he's not Paul. I don't think this is Paul. There's a different language. Than Paul writes a different kind of Greek. If the writer of Hebrews wanted to say once and forever, he would use a different word. The different word is uh, ethopax, which means once, like Christ died once for all, as he says in Hebrews 7.27, he says, he died once for all. Indeed, look at verse 27. Now stay with me. You guys with me now? Get your Bibles ready. Get your fingers ready with your apps because we're looking at a lot of Scripture, okay? If he wanted to say once for all that they had been enlightened, like one time and that was it, he would have used a different word. He would have used the same word in verse 27. For Christ to, um, who does not need daily, like those other priests, to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins, then for the sins of the people, because he did this once for all, different Greek word. So we know now whoever is this is being enlightened, at some time they have, they have been enlightened. Now what does that mean? The word enlightened is the word, it's a long word, but I'll give you the shortened verses, which was photizo. You think of photograph and photons, you know. Uh, uh, it's a longer word, but I'll just give you the, the verb form. It's, it's photizo, which means to to shed light upon, to be enlightened. At some time, these people he's talking about have been enlightened. Um, they have learned about. It, this word is used in John 1, 9, where it says, the true light that comes into the world enlightens every man, uh, gives understanding to every man. 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Listen to this. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord uh, comes, who will bring both to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men. To bring the light means to disclose, to reveal. At some point, these people have had something revealed to them. Okay? Um, Paul even prays in Ephesians 1.18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know. So at some point, those who have once been enlightened, they've come to some knowledge of the truth, of some knowledge of the gospel. Now, those who believe truly have been enlightened as well, but there's enlightening followed by faith. Here we just know, we're, we're just seeing them being enlightened, whoever these people are. Now, I think the key to understand this is what I just said before, is that he's appealing to these Jewish believers who know their Old Testament. At some point, their forefathers were enlightened as well. The obvious example is found in Exodus 13, 21, where it says that they had the pillar of cloud by day and the fire by night. God has rescued them out of Egypt. He's leading them in the wilderness. His presence is there day and night, cloud by day, fire by night. They have an understanding that God is with them. You follow so far? He says in Exodus 13, 21, the Lord was going on with a pillar by, of cloud by day to lead them to the way and the pillar of uh, uh, of cloud by a fire by night to give them light, same idea, same word. He also says this in Nehemiah nine twelve, with a cloud of fire of cloud, pillar of cloud he led them by day, and fire by night. It means so they have understanding. It doesn't 
mean faith. It means understanding. Now, in true believers, our faith, yes, faith is you've been enlightened, you've come to faith. But here, we're sticking with so far, so good, right? They've been enlightened. They know the scriptures. They may even even come to church and they know the gospel. They can repeat it to you left and right. But that's about it. If he wanted to say that they hadn't been enlightened and that enlightening has affected him to today, he would have used a different tense in the Greek. But at some point, they've come to the... There are a lot of people even who come to church who are around Christian things who know what the gospel is. They have an understanding. They know Jesus died for our sins. And that's, that's where it stays. Right? You guys staying with me? All right. In the case of those who have been once enlightened and having tasted the heavenly gift. Okay, tasting, that's a real experience. How many of you guys like to go to Costco and sample the tasting things, you know? They have tasted the heavenly gift. Now, obviously, taste is a real experience. It means partake something by mouth. But tasting necessarily doesn't mean it's life-changing. It means you've experienced something. It's also completely temporary. It doesn't have to be long-term. For example, in John 2, the, the head waiter tasted the wine that used to be water. Jesus on the cross, they gave him a sponge. They put a, some sort of vinegar and stuff in it, and they try to put it to his mouth, and it says that he was... Um, they gave him wine to, mixed with gall, and after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. He tasted it, all right? In Hebrews, uh, he does talk about Jesus tasting death for us. But that tasting of death didn't, didn't change Jesus. He just he experienced death. Now, what is he talking about here? It means to come to know something, to experience something. What did they taste? The heavenly gift. What is that? Well, the heavenly gift can refer to Jesus, right? says to the woman at the well, if you knew the gift of God, and it's actually Jesus or the Holy Spirit, and who it says to you, give me a drink, you have, he, would have, he gives me living water, which is the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the gift of God in the sense that Jesus, God said, God sent his only begotten son, right? He gave his son as a gift. The Holy Spirit is a gift from God. We know that. Peter says, repent each one of you and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We know those are true things, right? And we know the Holy Spirit has been sent from heaven. But remember, we're going back Old Testament. In case of those who have been enlightened, they have seen the pillar of, of cloud by day and the fire by night, right? They've experienced that God is there, that God has rescued them, that God has as a people, the Jewish people, uh, the Hebrew nation, and they have tasted the heavenly gift. What did they taste in the wilderness? Manna. Look at, um, uh, I don't know which verses I gave to you. Uh, okay, Exodus 16.4, And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and you shall go out and gather a day's portion. Psalm 105.40 says that they asked, and he brought quail, and he satisfied them with bread from heaven. They tasted the heavenly gift. Nehemiah 9.15. Uh, go to Nehemiah. We're going to look at Nehemiah. He's just repeating the history here, but Nehemiah, he goes, in fact, I want you to keep your place in Nehemiah 9, because we're going to go back and forth with that. Um, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, you know, kind of over there um, after the return. In, Hebrew, uh, in, Hebrews, in, Hebrews, in Nehemiah 9, he says in verse 15, you gave them bread from heaven. You, you gave them bread from heaven for their hunger. You brought forth water from the rock for their thirst. Right? They've tasted, these people have tasted the heavenly, they've tasted the manna. Now, obviously, fast forward now, there, there are people who, are, who go to church around Christian things who have experienced the things of God just by being in the midst of, of the people of God. 
They've heard the gospel. They've heard Bible teaching. They have friends who are Christians. And they're there. And they're sitting or they're occupying. They're there experiencing the good things of the Holy Spirit. The scripture does say that God has what is called common grace. He reigns upon the good and the evil, right? There are things that even those who are unbelievers experience the blessings of God, though they're not saved. For example, we had, um, years, a couple of years ago, we had um, like a, sort of like a praise night, which we're going to have at the end of September. By the way, we're going to have a praise and worship night and prayer night and devotional night at September. But we had time where we were praising the Lord. My friends, uh, uh, CL and Lisa were leading worship. We were just, it was like a Christmas time. We had our neighbors, our neighbor, our neighbors are Hindu. They don't know Jesus at all. And their little girl was there. And we're worshiping. What's that? It was after what? It was after a Super Bowl party. Yes, we were praising the Lord. The Super Bowl party was over. And then we were praising the Lord because God is on the throne. No matter what team wins or loses. We were, it was after a Super Bowl party. And whatever. They but here is our neighbor's daughter. And our, and their neighbor, the mom, was over there uh, earlier. They, they were around us as we were worshiping. In fact, the Lord was raising her hands being ministered to, feeling the blessing of God, being a part of that, though she's not a believer yet. They've tasted the manna. They've, um, go back to Hebrews um, 6. They have been enlightened. They have tasted the heavenly gift. They have even maybe some, you know, they have experienced some of these things. They're real experiences and they have become, verse 4, partakers of the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? It's the word uh, metakos. It means to share in. It means to participate in. It does, uh, means, uh, it does uh, can mean to participate in salvation. If you look at Hebrews 3, go to Hebrews 3. Hebrews 3 and... Uh, uh, well, verse 14 is where I want to go, but verse 12, he talks about, he goes, he says, See to it, brothers, that there not be any one of you with an evil and unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. That's in light of what he's just demonstrated through the previous verses of the people of Israel who didn't believe in God. Verse 14, For we have become partakers of Christ. Same word. We, have, we, are, uh, we are part of Christ. We are partakers with Christ if we hold fast. If, if it's, this is partakers of people who truly believe, right? But the word partaker, though, go back to Hebrews 6, can also mean a partner, an associate. It has a loose, it can also have a looser sense. Partakers doesn't, it can go from being close partners to being associates. It's used of uh, in Luke to describe when, the, when, when Peter and the boys were, well, Jesus had put a lot of fish in the nets and they were struggling. It says in Luke 5, 7, they signal to their partners, their other fishing buddies to come and help them. They signal for their partners, their medicos in the other boat for them to come and help and they help there's this, this idea of, of partners or companions as well. They have become partakers associated with the things of God. Paul will use this, uh, a similar word in Ephesians 5 where he says, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes on the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers or associates or partners with them. Now, he's not telling them that they're now becoming unbelievers like who they're... He's like, don't become associated with people who are going to go this way. So whoever he's talking about, those, which we'll see who they are in a second, they have been enlightened. They have... Something of God has been revealed to them. They've got the taste of the heavenly gift. They have been partakers of the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? They're partakers of the Holy Spirit. Now go back to, I want you to go to the book of Numbers, chapter 11. This is significant. 
Go back to Numbers chapter 11. Because if you think about the history of Israel, it's this. God made his promises to Abraham, right? He made his promise to Abraham. I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you seed. I'm going to make you a blessing. His people are slaves in Egypt for 400 some odd years. God raises up Moses to rescue them, the Exodus. The whole intent is for them to finally come to the promised land and live as God's people, to be a light to the nations, to minister, to learn of God, that kind of thing, right? On their way out, or while they're journeying, Moses is the one-man show. He's got over a million people following him, and he is burdened. He's like, God, kill me or help me. (laughs) I can't do this. He cries out to God for help. And look at Numbers 11. Um, And uh, let me get to... In Numbers 11, I'll just give you, in fact, um, verse 11. He says, So Moses said to Yahweh, uh, to the Lord, Why have you allowed this evil towards your slave? And why am, have I not found favor in your sight that you have laid these, this burden on all these people on me? I'm by myself. Was it I who conceived the, the... Was it my idea who gave birth to these people? I'm paraphrasing here to carry them in your bosom as your nurse carries a baby and to the land which you swore. It's like, God, I'm overwhelmed here. Where can I get meat to feed these people? They're crying before me. They, they're bringing all this stuff to Moses and Moses is desperate. And God says in verse 16, the Lord said to Moses, gather for me 70 men from the elders of Israel whom you know to be elders of the people. Verse 17, then I will come down and speak with you there and I will take of the spirit who is upon you and will put it on upon him, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you. So verse 25, Numbers eleven twenty-five. So Yahweh the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke, and he took of the spirit that was upon him and placed him upon the 70 elders. And when the spirit rested upon them, they prophesied. Verse 26, the two men that remained in the camp, uh, Elad and, and Medad, the spirit rested on them, Verse 27, a young man came to Moses and said, Edad, and they're prophesying. Verse 29, would all that God would, would make uh, everyone, pro- that Yahweh would put his spirit upon them. Here's the idea. So verse, so chapter 11, he now takes his Holy Spirit and he places on these elders that will help minister things, make judgments, everything else. It's Numbers 14, 13 and 14, where they refuse to go in the land. This is significant. They send spies in chapter 13. Spies come back, except for Caleb and Joshua. Land is bad. Let's not go in. And they rebel at Numbers 14. But before then, they had experience with the Holy Spirit. They had become partakers of the Holy Spirit. They had witnessed. They had the, those who had waited in line to hear judgments from one of the somebody else had been ministered to them by the Holy Spirit. And Nehemiah 9 says, You gave your good spirit to instruct them. Your manna did not withhold from their mouth, and you gave them water. You gave your spirit to instruct them. So they had tasted of the heavenly gift, the manna, and then by partakers of the Holy Spirit, they experienced even the Holy Spirit. Even today, in churches, there are people who aren't even followers of Christ, who God can even minister to them hopefully for the, for the point of drawing them to Christ. Paul even, this is now we're going to Paul, he talks about that those who, uh, who use the spiritual gifts and specifically say prophecy, where their, their, their hearts are disclosed, you know, and they're like, surely God's in this place. The Holy Spirit's able to do that, right? So here these people back, uh, back in Hebrews uh, chapter 6 have participated in that. They have been associated with the Holy Spirit. They've been partakers or partners or associated with the Holy Spirit. Isaiah 63, 11 says, Then his people returned or remembered the days of old of Moses. Where is he who brought them out of the sea of the shepherd, with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put his Holy Spirit in the midst of them? This is speaking of the Numbers chapter we just read. So go back to Hebrews 
6. So far, so good, everyone? They have become partners associated with the Holy, associated with the Holy Spirit. In some way, the work of the Holy Spirit, they've been able to share or have the benefits of. It's like you are able to pray for your unsaved, lost friends, and God will answer their prayers and can answer your prayer for them and minister to them, though they're not saved. For example, you pray for somebody's salvation. Oh, that's like the top of the list. They're receiving the blessing of the Holy Spirit in conversion. Somebody who's unsaved can come to you, hey, can you pray for... And you can pray and they say, hey, God did something. That doesn't mean they're necessarily believers yet, but they've received a blessing from the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? And God is gracious to do that. That's why we, we can't hold God all to ourselves. He wants us to, to be a light and to share the gospel and to, sh- and to share these blessings. But the whole point is to lead him to Christ, to faith. One thing that's missing in this description in Hebrews 6, uh, the verses, there's no indication of any faith. There's no, nothing that says they have come to faith. It does, nowhere it says they have come to faith and now they're relieving. Their, there's no indication of that at all. That's an obvious thing that's missing. They have tasted the good word of God. Perhaps, obviously, in our present context, maybe, they, maybe they've heard the gospel. Maybe they, they've heard teaching and preaching year after year after year. You, beforehand, we had a prayer, prayer request for the chief in Nigeria. He heard the gospel, right? Previously. Now, up in, now he's more ready to receive it, but he's been exposed to that. They've tasted the, the good word of God. The good word of God was preached to them. In the Old Testament context, it's God speaking his word to his people. Exodus chapter 20 says, Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He continues in Exodus chapter 20, verse 22. Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen that I have spoken to you from heaven. Hebrews 2, go to Hebrews 2. Are you guys with me still? Okay. Hebrews 2, verse 2. If the word spoken, that's the word of God, spoken to who? To the Old Testament audience, Israel. If the word spoken through angels proved unalterable. In other words, God used angels to minister uh, those, the, the word to, to the people. Uh, if that proved unalterable, that was serious, right? That was from him. Um, Nehemiah 9.13 says that you came down, God, you came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven just as you gave them ordinances and true laws, good statutes and commandments. So you have an exodus, God speaking his good word to people. They're hearing the word of God, hearing the word of God. They've been enlightened because they've seen God's presence. They've tasted manna. The Holy Spirit has been shed upon them in, in the sense of, of, uh, of ministering through the, through the elders. They've seen that. I mean, th- all this is going, and then they're, now they're hearing God's very word. Exodus talks about it, and Joshua, before they go into the land, go to Joshua chapter 21. Go to Joshua 21. Joshua 21, he reviews with them, you know, as they're, they're entering into the land. And he says in verse, um, um, well, my, uh, verse 45, he says, Not one promise of the good promises which Yahweh had promised to the house of Israel fail, all came to pass. In other words, his words, they start off with Exodus, and even before then, Genesis to Abraham. But all his words, he's t- spoken to us Israelites from Exodus on, has not failed. He, you've heard it, you've been exposed to the word of God. In chapter 23 of, of, of Joshua, look at chapter 23, verse 14. Now behold, today I'm going the way of all the earth, and you know in your, all your hearts, this is Joshua revealing, he's, he's going, he's going to die soon, right? You know in all your hearts and all your souls that not one word of all the good words, Hebrews says they have tasted the good word of God, not one word of the good words of the Lord or Yahweh, you, uh, your God spoke concerning you has failed. 
All has come to pass for you. Not one word of them has failed. They have tasted of the good word of God. It's the word that God has kept his promise. They've been exposed to all this. The writer of Hebrews is saying. They've seen things. They've seen powers. They've seen the power of God. They have been delivered out of... I mean, who splits the Red Sea? Right? But God. Who kills all the Egyptian army? But God. Who, who, um, who uh, sends um, plagues? And... In fact, I'm, skip, I'm, going, I'm jumping ahead of myself. Go back to Hebrews. That's the next point. <laughs> they have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. Being delivered from Egypt. You're talking over a million people being delivered by a man and a staff. A world power. The, the Egyptians had him enslaved for 400 and some odd years. And a man and a staff... And a wonderful God sets them free. They've experienced the powers of God. The plagues, which were judgment against the Egyptian gods. The parting of the Red Sea, the provision of the manna and quail later on. And water. We, knew that we live in a desert. Their desert's way more deserty than our desert. You know, we live in a lush desert. But where do you get water? But God provides water. The pillar, the cloud, the protection. They've experienced the powers of God, the powers of the age to come. Later on, of course, the New Testament will talk about Jesus as uh, Peter preaches in uh, Acts 2. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed in your midst. God's power has proven himself. He even says in several passages, he says in Deuteronomy 11, that his signs and his works he did in the midst of Egypt to, to Pharaoh and all his land. They've experienced all this. God has proven himself to them. There's a point where he says, now Numbers 14, where they want to rebel, how long will these people spur me and how long will they not believe in me despite all the signs I perform in your midst? And the Psalms has several places where he, he talks about the miracles he did. They have experienced this. If they have experienced all this, And that fall away. Verse six. We're gonna go a little long today, okay? Okay, because I don't wanna I don't wanna I wanna do this justice. And if I know I'm getting into some detail because um, verse six, and having fallen away, now that word means to commit apostasy, and it's a word that means to in the old testament, in the Septuagint, it means a total attitude reflecting deliberate and calculated renunciation of God. In other words, they've experienced all these things and then they renounce God. They've tasted, they've experienced, they've been exposed, and then if they renounce God, and this is a deliberate renunciation of God, it's impossible to renew them to repentance. Why? Because they're basically going to do it. They're taking Jesus and basically put him back on the cross. And the writer will say, they're exposing Jesus to shame again. It's as if they're saying, we've experienced all this, but we're rejecting. We're putting him on the cross. And we're going to stand by with the bystanders and accuse and insult and ridicule Jesus. That's what's going on. Now, the Greek indicates that as long as they're doing that, there's no way they can repent. Now, of course... Some people fear that maybe I've done that. We'll, we'll talk about that, okay? Because I know there's fear, great fear. Have I, have I done the impartable sin? That's a fear, right? Let's answer the first question, though. Who are these people? What's going on? We'll get to that, okay? You guys still with me? Okay. It's impossible to renew them to repentance. Impossible, of course, is used 
in other parts where it's impossible for God to lie. You know, it's impossible. While you reject, why? Because if you're rejecting Christ, there's no other options. If you're, if you're rejecting Christ, that's God's offer of salvation. If you say, no, thank you, but no thank you, I'll have another option, there's no way. And if you do that, and the writer hints at this, that if you do that, if you have such a hard heart to do all that, it'll be like somebody shares with you and says, well, and they share the gospel. Yeah, but I know that, but I don't accept it. Well, God can do a wonderful thing and change your life. I know that, but I reject that. And that's, that's kind of the hardness you're talking about here. That's scary, right? Now, what he's not doing is not saying that a person who wants a true believer has lost their salvation. Okay, let's just, why is that? Salvation is more than just you rejecting God or you accepting God. What's involved with salvation? Well, it's not just you doing the activity, it's God too. We love him because he what? First loved us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died. God does the heavy lifting first, right? We believe in him. He makes us born again. That's his work. Salvation has a lot going on with it, right? We trust in him, but he delivers us from the domain of darkness. He makes us spiritually alive. He justifies us, which means we are declared as unrighteous before God. He gives us his Holy Spirit. He begins a work of sanctification in our lives. All that. There's a lot of stuff. That's, he adopts us into his family. Now, for somebody to say, well, they were saved, but then they lost their salvation, means that, that they decided to turn from God, and God decided to turn from them. But I read too many scripture where it says that we are safe and secure in Christ, right? You guys know the scripture. I'm getting ahead of myself. See, if you think it's all in your control, then you are in scary territory. Because there may be some days where I, I feel lousy and I'm going to say, God, I'm having a hard time, you know. And I, if, if salvation was so insecure as to be based on my emotions or my feelings, then I'm not secure and I'll never grow to maturity. If I think God will, will reject me, accept me, reject me, reject me, if it's God, no, God is stable. He who began a good work will continue that. I know that's speaking of corporate of the church, but individually applies to it as well. Romans 8, what's 8, 28 and 29 say? That should be another scripture memory verse, right? You guys know that. For God what? For God causes all things to work to good for those what? And then verse 29. Because those whom he foreknew, he predestined and to become conformed to the image of the Son, so that he would become their firstborn among my brethren. And those he predestined, he called. And those he called, he justified. And those he glorified, he glorified as well. What's the idea? Is that God has the salvation planned out from beginning to end. So, rescuing you, making you born again, up to glorification, is all involved in salvation. And you think that you have that you're the linchpin in the whole matter. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't fit Scripture. Now, there are days when you feel insecure in Christ, right? And how you get security in Christ is by, is by looking at Christ because God's not changing. He's not going back and saying, you know, I'm going to go back and undo what I did on the cross. He's not going to do that. Go back to Hebrews. All right. I left. Are you guys still in Hebrews? Okay. It's impossible to renew them to repentance since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Okay. Who are these people? I think these are people who have been exposed to so many things but never, were never saved to begin with. Verse 7 and 8. Let me prove it. Okay. For the ground that drinks rain. He's going to use ground. Okay. 
you're talking to an agrarian, agrarian culture. They know dirt. They know ground. They know planting. They, they know sowing and reaping. They know all that, right? For ground that drinks rain, which often falls on it, brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. Key word, blessing. Next verse. If it yields, what's the word it refer to? It refers to the ground. If the ground yields thistles and thorns, it, it, the ground, is unfit. By the way, in the Greek, it's singular, referring to the ground, not plural, referring to the thorns and thistles. It is unfit and close to being cursed. Blessing and curse. By the way, Deuteronomy 11 talks about the blessing and curse. Blessing, if you obey the things of God in the land, you'll get the blessing of fruitfulness and things growing and everything else, right? If you don't believe God, if you believe in trusting God, you'll get the blessing. Chapter 11 of Deuteronomy. If you reject and don't believe God, you'll get the things won't grow. The thorns and thistles are things that happen naturally, right? You don't have to plant thorn seeds and thistle seeds, do you? They're like weeds. They just grow. It takes work to cultivate things that will grow and have fruitfulness, right? You don't have to do any work naturally you're going to produce thorns and thistles. The natural man will produce all kinds of stuff. Prickly little things, right? Now when you're planting, and you're hoping, when you're planting, observe, observationally from an outsider, you, won't, you can't tell, okay, the ground is empty, things have been planted, and now it's just dirt, and you don't know whether the dirt's going to produce good fruit or no fruit or good things or bad things. You don't know by looking at the ground. But what comes from the ground eventually will tell you, ah, this is bad, and that's good, right? Jesus even says, of course, uh, he uses the illustration of, of um, you know, um, Things that are good come from, you know, things that are like a, a, a good tree will produce good fruit. A bad tree can't produce good fruit. Right? Matthew 7, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Outside they look great. They look like sheep, but inside they're ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes or, nor figs from thistles. Are they? So every good tree bears good fruit. And what you have in Hebrews is you have the indication of what kind of ground it is. Does that make sense? The difference between the ground is the difference between those who have faith in God and those who don't have faith in God. Those who have faith in God will produce fruit. Those who don't have faith in God will never produce fruit. So who are the people talking about? These are people who don't have faith in God despite all the exposure. Go go, go to Hebrews 4. Hebrews 4. Verse 2. Hebrews 4, 2. Are you guys with me? Or have I lost you? Okay. I'm not done yet. We're almost done. For indeed, we have had good news proclaimed to us, just as they also, but the word that was heard by them, did not profit those who were not united with faith among those who heard. In other words, they've been exposed, you can be exposed to the gospel, have the good things of God around you, hear it all that, but if it's not received and believed with faith, it doesn't lead to fruitfulness, doesn't lead to growth, doesn't lead to any of that stuff. Though we are exposed to all that, the problem he's talking about here are people who are around the things, they see God's power, they hear God's word, they, they even receive in blessings from answered prayer, perhaps. They understand what the gospel is, and their heart has never received. How do I know that? Look at Hebrews chapter 3. Watch this. Now, this is the key point. Because those Israelites that came out of Egypt, and they're, wandering, they're traveling with Moses, 
and eventually they rebel. They don't rebel because they once were saved and they, they lost and gained and lost and gained. Look what the Hebrew writer says about this. In Hebrews 9, a th- a verse, um, chapter 3, I'm excited. How can you not be excited about God's word, right? Right? Come on. Amen? Amen. There's no... And I skipped a lot of stuff, so I'm just kind of... I mean, I, mean, you know, I, I wish you could just do the whole Matrix download thing and, whew, you know, I know Bible, I know Kung Fu, I know, I know Greek and Hebrew perfectly, you know? <laughs> no, it takes hard work, you know? It takes... And we're, and we're, we're doing this, and we're, we're doing that hard work. Look at this. Hebrews 3... Um, Verse 7, he says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness. That's Exodus 17. Uh, But then he goes to Numbers as well, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. There I was angry with that generation. They saw all that, experienced all that. But look what he says about that generation. Look what he says about these kind of people. It's this. They, verse 10, therefore uh, I was angry with this generation and said they what? They always go astray in their hearts. Always. And did not what? They did not, they always went astray in their heart. Their heart was never good. Their heart never had faith. It wasn't like they vacillated, like we, a lot of times we grow in faith and we vacillate back and forth because like, we're learning and growing. They never had faith ever to begin with. They always went astray and they never knew God's ways. So it wasn't they were saved and got unsaved. It was they never knew God. Being around the things of God doesn't, it takes the work of the Holy Spirit to then penetrate the heart, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And God said what? And darkness was all over the earth, you know, formless and void and everything else. And then God says what? Until God says, let there be light, there's no light. Paul talks about how, how God has shown the, the light in our hearts, alluding to that verse. It's a work of the Holy Spirit to bring somebody to faith, right? No one's seeking after God. No, not one. We, we know what the Scripture says. And here, they never knew God. They always went astray. Jesus picks up on the same idea. Oh, go to, go, go to Matthew 7. You guys know this first, but I'm going to point something out. I'm giving you guys a lot, and we have communion to do as well. Praise God. Amen. Okay. Amen. I'm not going to do every chapter like this, like every single word, but this was important. You guys know that. Hebrew, uh, Matthew 7. Finishing up the, the Sermon on the Mount. Beware of the false prophets, verse 15, who come to you in sheep's clothing. But inwardly, I read that you will know them by their fruit. Every good tree that bears uh, will bear good fruit. Bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree, verse 18, can't bear bad fruit. And a bad tree can't produce good fruit. Verse 20, that you will know them by the fruits. 21. Not everyone who says to me, listen up, listen. Not everyone. This is my Charles Stanley imitation. Now listen. Now listen. Now listen, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. You could say the right words. You can say, Jesus, praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. You know, I'm Lord, Lord, this, and, and, and do all. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my father, which is a, doing the will of, God, of the father, of course, is a, is a result of a changed heart. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did, in your name, did we not prophesy? Did we not cast out demons? And in your name do many miracles. And then verse 23, he says, I will declare to them, I what? I never knew you. Not you were saved, but then I'm sorry you lost your salvation. And then you, you know, I'm so sorry. I never knew you. 
ever. That's scary. Now, the Hebrew writers is hinting at this kind of scenario. Let it be that it gets your attention. Let it be that it says, now, am I truly in the faith? Am I, have I truly have, how do I know if I'm in the faith? Do you trust in Christ for your salvation? Is your trust in Jesus Christ for salvation? That's it. Not, being exposed is great. Doing, doing miracles in Jesus' name is great. But do you trust in Jesus Christ for your salvation to wash your sins away, to give you eternal life? Is your trust in, is that the bedrock of your hope? Is that it? Or is it doing things for God? See, I know a lot of Christians who are really busy at church and they get busy and they kind of serve and they, kind of, and they don't know Jesus at all. Now, a, a good Christian, of course, the Lord will use them to be fruitful and do all those things. They, they had it backwards, you know? It's like knowing Jesus. And at, at, the, end, at the end of the day, it's coming to Christ as as a sinner, broken over our sin, understanding that our sin destines us for hell, and that salvation of, is of such glorious weight and, and value, and saying, Lord, forgive me. Be merciful to me. That's where it all starts. And Paul, or Paul, the writer of Hebrews says, they, they always went astray. Right. They never knew my ways. These people are doing great things in my name. They, I ne- they, never, they never knew me. Now let me give you, let me, for those who are fearful, don't look or base your faith on feelings. Say, do I, do I trust in Christ? Yes. That doesn't change. Has Christ decided to change his mind? No. Has he decided to go back and renege what he's done? No. That's not changing. Then rest in that. And rest in the fact that Jesus Christ won't let you go. That you're safe. If he's the good shepherd and he's God Almighty, who, who can get through his doors, right? They do have walls around heaven because there are people who want to get into heaven without going through the right way, which is Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them is like a wise builder. So who are the people in Hebrews 6? They are people who have been exposed to the good things of God, but never believed God, never opened up their heart to God, never trusted God. They always went astray. My prayer is if you have trusted Christ for your salvation, you are safe. And we'll continue this discussion next week because I'm out of time. Because I do want to now major on uh, next week on our security and assurance in Christ because I don't know about you, but I for one have had that struggle. Am I saved? You get into, I guys have gotten to that. Nobody else, just me. Okay. I've had that struggle. And so I have to go to his word for assurance. I have to go to his promises for assurance. And I have to stop looking at myself and look to him. But I also have to take this warning seriously and say, now, am I those people? Have I really trusted in Christ? Or am I trusting in my good works to gain his favor? We're going to do communion. I know we're running late. That's okay. I... I'll do a short sermon next time, okay? No, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Why don't we do this? Why don't we close your eyes, bow your head, and take a few minutes just meditating on the good work of God, the good word of God, the, 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 the work of Christ on the cross. Because at the end of the day, salvation begins with God and ends with God. It was his plan to begin with. And ask yourself, between you and God, am I trusting in Christ for my salvation? Have I trusted that he has washed all of my sins away, that he has made me a new person, that his sacrifice on the cross is sufficient to wash away all my sins? Am I leaning on him? Am I resting on him? Am I trusting on him? Scripture says that Jesus is the only way to the Father. So take a few minutes. And then we'll pass out the elements. Lord, we just want to thank you that 
you have put so much into purchasing our salvation, Lord. The scripture says even from before the before the foundations of the world that you had this whole eternal plan decided and ultimately you would send your son Jesus Christ to to pay the penalty for our sin to make us alive to restore and to bring us into fellowship with you again God such love that you have for us that you would give the most valuable thing in heaven that's your son Lord, I pray that every person who hears my words, I pray that everyone has truly trusted in you, has surrendered in humility, that each one of us would recognize that we are in such desperate need of forgiveness. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We can't save ourselves. We can't change ourselves. We can't improve ourselves. It is the work of God. And Lord, you, you said, I have come that they may have life and that abundantly. And that life, of course, is only possible through because of your sacrifice on the cross. You're the one who's able to wash our sins away, to make us new, to fill us with your presence, with your Holy Spirit, to bear fruit in our lives, to lead us into a way to know the Father, to know you. Grant believing hearts to the... Maybe there's somebody here physically or watching online. Maybe they've been around the things of God their entire lives or for a long time. They've, they know the gospel. They know the, that God is true. And they've seen things, but they've never opened up their hearts to you. They've never repented and never trusted in Christ. If that's you, I encourage you just in your heart to God. Say, Lord, I trust you, Lord Jesus, to to wash my sins away and give me life and to bring me to heaven. Let it be, Lord, that we, all of us who are believers, would look to Christ and not to ourselves. Thank you, Lord, that the Scripture says that while they were eating, Jesus took bread and after a blessing, he broke it and gave his disciples. He said, take, eat, this is my body. Lord, thank you for the, the fact that your son, Jesus, allowed himself to be broken. Lord, you're the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. And so, Lord, in Jesus' name, we, we, we thank you and we receive this bread remembering your body that was broken. Amen. Let's partake of the bread together. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Lord, it's your blood that washes away our sin. It's your blood that was poured out, your innocent, spotless blood as the spotless Lamb of God, but it's the blood that cleanses it all, Lord. We take this cup, this symbolizes in remembrance the blood that was poured out for you, and we receive it. We say, thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Let us taste and see that the Lord is good. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Let's stand.
Praise the Lord. God is good, isn't he? Amen. God is good all the time. <laughs> and all the time he is good. Doesn't change. of God, and I appreciate all of you guys, and wonderful. I love how God has brought us together, and He's working in our midst, and God has given our body such depth and maturity and grace, and and uh, and look forward to what He does in and through us. We are a church that's obviously committed to His Word. We take His Word seriously, but we also are committed to obedience of Him and to... Um, is just growing closer to him. And so um, later on at the end of September, we're going to have a, a night of prayer and praise and devotion. The last, I think it's the last Friday of September. We'll put it out there. Just time to get together and just and just spend time in prayer and worship the Lord. Yeah. Oh, I put it right there. Well, I know I went long today, but that's okay. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Think about that. May the Lord bless you in what? Keep you. Not lose you. But keep you. May the Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. May the Lord lift up His countenance upon you. Big smile. And grant you His peace. In Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. See you guys. Later on, men, we'll see you on Saturday.